0: So I was completely prepared to get back into our study in the book of Acts this week. We uh, have been over the last few months going verse by verse through the book of Acts. But as we finish this series on our mission and vision as a church, I didn't feel as if it would be proper without finishing with the passage that is most responsible for my missiology of any Other passage in the Bible. There's probably no passage that captivates my mind like the party in Matthew's house in Mark chapter 2. If you've um, known me for any period of time, you've probably heard me talk about this. I wanted to actually name the church Matthew's house because of what you see go on in Matthew's house here, but that is a cultish sounding name and um, people don't let me name stuff because I come up with awful names for things. So um, you're lucky. You would be saying that you're going to Matthew's house this morning if I had anything to do with it. But this passage just opens your mind to what church ought to look like. It's this gnarly, ragtag group of sinners, saints, and people in process with Jesus being right at the center of what's going on and being put on display in a way that is just absolutely glorious. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is the more that you study it, the deeper it takes you into the precious heart of Jesus Christ. So, When a pastor goes away and gets their theological training, when you go to Bible college, when you go to seminary, you start to get all of your ologies in. You get your theology, your soteriology, your Christology, your missiology. Well, I'm going to get a little bit theological here for a moment, and I'm hoping that you guys can track me. And even if I do lose you, you will catch up and you're going to smell what I'm cooking. And it's just such a beautiful biblical truth that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, I used to look at passages like this and think that they were really serving one function, to teach missional theology, or missiology will be the word that we'll use for that throughout the sermon. But lately I've been having this theological awakening and realizing that something I've probably never seen before I love to study Christology. It's my absolute favorite area of theology. Um, you know the joke that they say about reformed people and the way that they look at the Bible and everything being about Jesus. They say, uh, you know, what has a, uh, what's gray, has a long trunk, skinny little tail. Um, I don't know, but it must be Jesus. So that's kind of the way Reformed folks view the Bible, is we just find a way to see Jesus in everything. And I love studying Christology. I love to preach Christology. Um, Missiology has been something that has just captivated my mind in recent years years of the theology of being a missionary right here in your hometown, and we wouldn't be complete talking about our mission and vision as a church if we didn't talk about your calling to be a missionary right here where you're planted, and lately I've discovered something really awesome that's just kind of rattled the way that I've been thinking, and that's you cannot separate Christology from missiology. Uh, these are categories that we create. And the passages like this show that there's so much more overlap in these areas of theology. And you can't use man-made categories to be able to contain what Jesus is doing in stuff like this. Because Jesus will come in and absolutely just blow up and eradicate any of your man-made categories that you That's the whole purpose of the wineskins passage later on in the Gospel of Mark. He's saying, look, I'm doing this new thing. You can't contain me in the old ways that you used to try to contain me because I will come in and blow that up and just burst the thing that you're trying to contain me with. You cannot have a Christology that's separate from your missiology. Or said in a simpler way. You can't have a theology of the person and the work of Jesus Christ that's separate from the theology of the mission of Jesus Christ and what He is doing in and through His church. Otherwise, you end up with this fragmented Jesus that looks nothing like the radical friend of sinners that you see in the Scriptures. And you end up with a church whose gatherings look nothing like the radical brand of misfits that you see throughout the Scriptures. Jesus defined His own mission. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And when He said that, He was tying His Christology and His theology together in a way where you can't look at them separate, or else you don't end up with a biblical Jesus... Or you don't end up with a biblical church. And the thing that I'm starting to see is, I've known that for a long time, but really starting to see on a heart level is for Jesus, mission is not a part of what He did. Mission comes out of the very fabric of who He is. And that's what I want to drive home to you folks this morning. It was at His very core. When you separate Christology and Missiology, you end up with this church that believes in a Christ that could save you, but not a church that looks like anything that Jesus would actually attend. And folks, I hope that's sobering to you to think about. I don't want to invest my life building a church that Jesus Christ would not come to. I don't want to invest my life building a church that Jesus would not attend. The biblical community has to have both. It, it, as I look at this passage it just makes me ask a bunch of questions like why would I want to invest my life in building a church that Jesus would not come to. The the person of Jesus was just intertwined with the mission of Jesus. And you have to present both to see what it looks like to live on mission in a biblical community. And the biblical community has to have both in order to show what you have in Scriptures. Biblical community needs to be messy. It's unpredictable. It can't be contained in boxes or structures. Biblical community that separates Christology from missiology ends up with a stained-glass Jesus and a bunch of stained glass people who gather to worship their stained glass God. And that's not Christianity. That's not the church, folks. And that's why the church rarely earns the honor that you see here in Mark chapter 2, which is being called a friend of sinners. So the reason I love this passage so much is we see the salvation of Matthew, the tax collector, and while he's still at his rawest and grittiest and newest in Christ, we see what it looks like when he begins this journey with Jesus. And he doesn't have to learn a bunch of junk. He doesn't have to unlearn a bunch of junk. He doesn't have to relearn a bunch of junk. He just got it. He understood that following Jesus means participating in the mission of Jesus Christ because the two are supposed to be fused and were never supposed to be separated. And he was raw enough to just see Jesus and take Him for face value. So this morning, we're going to look at seven examples of how Jesus and His mission were completely connected to the true Jesus and how that fleshes itself out in community. So let's dive right in. Let's look at, Luke, uh, let's look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, And He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. And he reclined at the table, and in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Those who are well... Have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the first thing I want you to take notice of is anything that Matthew did started with a movement from Jesus toward Matthew, not Matthew, towards Jesus. If you really want to soak up all of the grace that there is to be found in this passage, you have to first start by pointing out the fact that it was Jesus who pursued Matthew, not Matthew, that was pursuing Jesus. You see Matthew just sitting here at a tax collector's booth over on the side of the road, and Matthew was not some spiritual seeker who stumbled into finding Jesus. He was a crook, who spent his day extorting money from his own people and he was right in the midst of a usual day's work when Jesus encounters him in this passage and in the middle of it Jesus goes looking for this rugged sinner and says you are mine. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you get that reality? I mean man, do I get it. That's why I love this passage so much. I don't know about you. I wasn't looking. For Jesus when he found me. It's not like I was some spiritual seeker or good man that was doing all of these things on a quest to go and find Jesus. I was a thug. I was a bad human being. I was feeding my addiction and living a life only for the sake of me and my hedonistic pleasures. And in the middle of it, Jesus grabbed me by the back of my neck and said, no longer, you are mine. And all of a sudden, he changed the complete narrative of my life. He changed the center of my life. My center was no longer me, and just feeding my selfish pleasures, Jesus gave a new narrative, a new story, and a new hero to my life. And there's this amazing reality that when Jesus went and loved a man who was unlovable, as a result, that man's heart was now set free to love, like it says in 1 John. We love because He first loved us. Before, Matthew could not respond to Jesus. Jesus had to resuscitate His cold, dead, lifeless heart. And the minute He does... The reason I love this passage is it's so tangible in real time. You see this grace explosion take place the minute that Jesus encounters Matthew. It's like Jesus uses this grace defibrillator and just shocks Matthew's heart back into life. And this shriveled up heart learns how to love. And it's critical before getting into all the beautiful missional fruit that this passage talks about that you see that grace was the place that it all started. Anytime we encourage a life on mission and you don't make grace as the radical center of it, the entire theology begins to fall apart, folks. You get people that are dry and weary because they're operating in their own strength or they're operating out of a response to guilt or some other unsustainable motivation. And eventually they tap out because they can't sustain that life any longer. So rather than being fueled by this radical motivation of God's grace, which continues to sustain you for the mission that God calls you to, we live our lives as missionaries, as those who have already been granted God's full Love and acceptance, which is unchangeable and unshakable. If you are in Christ, it's unchangeable and unshakable regardless of how you walk out of this place. And when we look at the next part of this story, Matthew wasn't guilted into or shamed into sharing his new life with his old friends. He did it as a natural response to the grace of God, which was shed upon him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our next missional lesson that we see in this passage. After Matthew received God's amazing grace, he reengaged his unbelieving friends and family with the Jesus that had just changed everything in his life. I mean, this passage is amazing. As soon as Matthew, like the minute that Matthew comes to know who Jesus was, his first desire is that his closest friends would come to know who Jesus was. Isn't that awesome? You guys are all staring at me very bizarrely today, so can you just acknowledge something so we can move on and just break this weird tension? Is that cool? I mean, the guy, this guy was a hooligan. Jesus grabs him by the back of the neck and says, you're mine. And all of a sudden, instead of just going into some religious weirdo world, he says, I want my friends to meet this Jesus. Jesus is a game changer. Everything's different since meeting Jesus. So what we have here is Matthew beginning a relationship with Jesus and then desiring that the people he cares about the most in the world would also have a relationship with the one whom changed his life. And there's not a weird gap in the middle of it like so many of us. He's like, whoa, Jesus changed everything. And I want my friends to know this Jesus who changed everything. Another reason why I love this passage is because how opposite this was to my Christian experience, folks. I feel like it gives me some hope to share with people that are either in the midst of making the same mistakes that I've made or are about to make the same mistakes that I've made. Look, I killed every relationship that I had spent my entire life building when I came to Christ. Anybody identify with that? Isn't it ironic in this new missional movement that we encourage people to go out and make and engage relationships, but it's after most of us cut off all of the relationships that we spent our entire life making and cultivating? No wonder why the environments where we learn this can feel cheesy, artificial, and not real. Anyone else just completely separate yourself from all of your non-Christian friends after coming to Christ. I don't want you to raise your hands. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. But for some of us, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. There is a brief season that we might need that. I think this is particularly true of those who are saved out of addiction or those who... Um, have been around those who are fueled by addictions. We need a little bit of time where we change people, places, and things in order to ensure that we don't potentially go back to a lifestyle that could be threatening. So there's the disclaimer. Disclaimer over. Because guess what? Jesus doesn't put a disclaimer in this passage. So I'm not going to harp on the disclaimer. But the the more regular narrative is that people begin to meet Jesus and they begin to distance themselves from those who don't know Jesus. That seems to be the norm in almost every testimony I hear of people who got saved later in life. That after we got saved, there's this period of time where we kind of shun the people that are not a part of the new club that we've joined. And we do it with longtime friends, like I did. I've seen people do it with extended family, like I did. We've even seen people do it with their spouses as if that's what God is calling us to do with this new relationship of Christianity. I think of how many of us have probably turned off family to the Gospel because it becomes very clear that we're more concerned with our new family than the family that God gave us. Can anybody identify with that? Instead of looking like this passage, we begin to compartmentalize our lives and have Christian family, and then we have this other compartment that we separate with a wide chasm in between. And I doubt that any of us were ever taught to think that way. But what kind of message does that send? How do you think the loved ones who don't understand Jesus, whose hearts were not regenerated by the spirit of Jesus, how do you think that they interpret and understand what it is that they're observing that's going on? They feel that they're not as important to you as this new family that they don't understand, right? So rather than become interested in the gospel, they begin to resent the church, and you see the chasm widen and continue. But were we ever really taught to do this? Did anybody ever teach us that you're supposed to separate? Again, except for the necessary disclaimer examples that I gave. Did anybody ever tell you your church family is more important now So begin spending all of your time with your church family, like the passage we looked at last week and some of the examples that we gave to the expense of spending time with any of your old friends and family. I doubt it. I mean, I'm not running all the same circles that all of you guys run in or hang out with all the people that you hang out with, but I doubt that anybody ever preached that message to you. And if they have, I'm sorry, you were lied to. That's not from the Scriptures. But if we're not taught this, then why do we do it? And I think the answer is really simple. For many of us, our church family is a lot easier to hang out with than our actual family. Our church family are the group of people that we come together because we share things in common. That's the basis of bringing us together. We come together out of our common faith in Jesus Christ, our common commitment to uphold the Word of God, and we get to choose who we're going to hang out with when we come together based on affiliation does that sound? <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, sorry, I get ADD up here sometimes. But look, we didn't have that choice with our family. Like, like the saying goes, you, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family, right? We were born into the family that we've been given. Another reason for the separating is we can feel like if we hang out with these people too much, things can begin to get messy. Can I show? just throw something out there for your consideration? Jesus is a lot more okay with messy than his church is. This whole passage right here, if you read... Mark chapter 2, this whole passage has messy written all over it from the beginning to the end. Often people feel like I need to separate until I'm strong enough to be able to re-engage these old relationships and not get messy in that environment. But by the time we're strong enough to re-engage our friends, we're some weirdo that doesn't even speak the same language that they do. It is there like a fire going on? Like I don't want to just keep preaching if we're going to die. <laughs> this is like uncharted waters for me. I don't know what to do with this. Hey, Daniel, you're the one out there. Can you like tell me what to do here? Can we take it and run with it into the hallway and just go chuck it in the parking lot? Whoo! All right, there we go. There's some responsiveness. Hallelujah. All right. So I think I was I I think I was making a point here that. By the time we disengage so that we can be strong enough to know how to re-engage, by the time we re-engage, we become some weirdo and don't even know how to speak the language of the people that we're seeking to re-engage. Like when I got saved, and I all of a sudden just started using just the goofiest language and saying things that I would never say. And I started wearing sweater vests and I started like wearing khakis. And all of a sudden I wasn't this dreadlocked hippie anymore that all my friends knew. I started showing up just looking like the biggest weenie on the face of the earth. And I was like, hey guys, want to hear about my Jesus? And they were like, what are you even talking about? They don't even understand the language that you're speaking anymore. But man, that's the point. It it had been so long since I spent time with non-Christians, I forgot to talk like a normal person, which is the exact opposite of the Jesus who came and incarnated very real flesh, dwelt among us, and was real, very real as he dwelt among us. Sinners. Which kind of flows into our next point that Matthew never had to break out of church world because Matthew never got sucked into church world. This is one of my favorite things to be able to challenge Christians on, folks. Unfortunately, it is so easy to pick up some really bad habits along the way. The church is a collection of sinners saved by grace gathered to mobilize to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Okay, Do you think you guys could articulate that? The church is a bunch of sinners saved by grace that have been gathered together to mobilize to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was never intended to become our world. Get that. If you get nothing else this morning, get that. It was never intended to become our world. I meet a lot of Christians whose lives are way too revolved around church and Christian fellowship. And guys, I'm not trying to be offensive here. I'm really not. I, I, I just want you to think of the implications of this, though. Packing our lives with so much Christian stuff that there's a different Bible study or a different Christian function every night of the week. And I'm not saying that Christian... Fellowship is not important, but you have Christian fellowship on Sunday morning. If you're involved in a community group, you have Christian fellowship in your community group. If you have Christian friends or Bible studies or accountability groups you go to, you have Christians that go there. If you have Christians that live in your home, you come home and you have Christian fellowship. How much fellowship do we need? I mean, with all of that, do we really need to find Christian affinity groups for every single thing that we do so that we can just hop from thing to thing and never have to actually enter the real world and do anything that ever has us rubbing elbows with non-Christians at any time in our life? Where does it end? Let me ask you, because I went years without anybody asking me this question. Do you really think that that's what Jesus intended for his church you think that he wanted us to just find Christian versions of everything that we do so that we could spend our entire life never having to leave the church? I mean, just one example. What if instead of creating Christian art and music, we just had Christians creating art and music? What if instead of having a Christian softball team, we just had Christians play softball with people that are sinners and maybe even go to the bar afterwards? What if instead of having a Christian softball team, we had Christians play softball and they were actually good, and Christian wasn't just an adjective for worst team in the league. I mean, let's be serious. What if instead of making Christian music, we had Christians make music and it was good and it wasn't just an adjective for stuff that the world was listening to in 1993 and we're just catching up to speed? I mean, let's be serious. What if we began to have Christians infiltrate the artistic community? What if Christian was not just an adjective that meant cheesy to people? What if Christian actually looked like it does here in Mark chapter 2 and it meant rubbing elbows with sinners in a way where they could not help but recognize that Jesus Christ was doing something in their midst? What if that's what Christian meant? Which brings us to our next point People felt like they could be themselves around Jesus, and Jesus was able to be Himself, yet He didn't have to compromise who He was in order to do so. He simply lived out the reality of His nature. Again, look at... I mean, it's just so clear the way that it unfolds in this passage. He's eating, as it says in verse 16, with tax collectors, and sinners. We see him reclining at the table with them in verse 15. This is why the word reclining is actually used twice in this passage to show that this is not a stuffy encounter. Reclining means that they were sitting back, they were relaxing, and check this out, this is is crazy. They were actually enjoying themselves at this thing. What if what's implied here is that These people actually enjoyed themselves around Jesus, and they felt comfortable around Jesus. Go figure, because I'm a Christian, and I often don't feel like I can be comfortable in certain Christian circles. Yet these non-Christians felt like they could be comfortable around the Son of God. What if we just loved people for where they were at and committed to be a community of grace when it comes to all of those unimportant things that really shouldn't matter or divide us? Do you think that people would be able to come in and find an on-ramp to Jesus that way? I think that people would feel like they could come in and actually be real. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about, when I say messy, I'm not saying let's let all of our sin hang out. That stuff needs to be sanctified. That needs to be nailed to the cross, folks. What I mean is simply creating environments where we could celebrate the unique ways that each of us are wired, even if people are uniquely wired in a way that's different than you. People give up on church all the time because they're convinced that they're not going to find an environment where they can be authentic and where people will be authentic to them in return. I've seen more people tap out of church and lose their faith because environments of forced artificial intimacy than I've seen people lose their faith because they no longer believe in the character of Jesus as laid out in Scriptures. And guys, non-Christians aren't going to be drawn by environments of artificial intimacy. They can find that on their own without having to come to church. They need to see that we're real, that we don't claim that we're perfect. We don't claim that we have some moral superiority over them. We are real. We have found grace, and we want to be heralds of that grace to the world around us because there is a real Jesus who loves us and loves them. Amen? People are so sick of environments where they don't feel like they can measure up and that's what's so radical about Jesus. And guess what? We don't have to try to measure up because that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus measured up on your behalf because you can't. So Jesus is already measured up so you don't have to come here pretending like you need to measure up because you can't. So we come together and celebrate the fact that Jesus did. How radical is that? The reality is not one of us measure up. But their inability to measure up is what drove them to Jesus. And guess what, man? We, you don't have to pretend any longer. So really, there should be no such thing as making people feel like they don't measure up because they're either in need of Christ's righteousness or they've obtained Christ's righteousness imputed by His grace. And if you have, then the measuring up already happens. And friends, let me encourage you in this. Jesus loved these people for who they were. This passage absolutely screams that. He didn't love them for who they will become. He didn't love some polished up version of themselves. He loved them right then in real time for exactly who they were. Look, Jesus, look at me, Jesus loves you. Not the future version of you. Not the one that doesn't deal with all the things that you were insecure when you woke up with this morning. Not some stained glass version of you in the future. Jesus loves you, very you. Which brings us to our next point, and I'm going to bring this home in the next three minutes. Jesus was not afraid to be known as a friend of sinners. Can the same thing be said of His church? And friends, on this point, I feel like we would all nod our heads We would all say amen. But I feel like if we observed something as radical as what was going on here, that some of us might have just as hard of a time as the Pharisees did. Look, Jesus was intimate with these people. He reclined with them. He ate with them. He drank with them so much so that the various retellings of this passage, the people indict Jesus as being a friend of tax collectors, a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners. Guys, you don't get called a friend of sinners and a glutton because you pop in stay on the fringes jesus feasted with these people you don't get called a drunkard because you sit around and watch other people drink jesus in a non-sinful way drank with these people You don't get called a friend of sinners by being a casual acquaintance with people. These people were actually friends with Jesus. I want to ask you a question that crushed me when I began walking through this stuff. How many of you would have a non-Christian that would list you as one of their five best friends? And how many of you have a non-Christian that you would list as one of your best friends? Because if that's really hard to come up with, I just want to... Propose that maybe you've been succumbing to churchianity for a little bit too long. I was actually listening to this pastor on a Christian radio station recently, and he was saying that his lack of non Christian friends was a defining mark on how mature he had grown in Christ, and that all of his friends are now Jesus loving Christians. And I actually started screaming at my stereo as I was driving along, saying, You're poisoning your congregation! Why are you even telling him that? Your life looks nothing like the life of Jesus. And you know what's cool? Is Jesus didn't care what people thought about him when he hung out with all of these non-Christians. They didn't like Jesus' choice of friends, so Jesus was like, peace. You want to take off? (laughs) That's fine. I'm going to hang with who I'm going to hang with. If you're a friend of sinners, it will make religious people mad. And friends, I pray that Redeemer Fellowship will be the kind of church that can make religious people angry. May we earn that honor to just infuriate religious people. Also, Jesus didn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Jesus understood the difference between biblical holiness and legalistic moralism. That's key for living like a missionary, folks. You never want to get to the place where you're compromising biblical holiness in order to be relevant. God does not ever call his people to sin or condone sin in order to accomplish his work. But let's make sure that we're talking about sin here and not just legalistic, moralistic tendencies. What an honor to earn the derision of being known as a friend of sinners. I pray that our church can work at earning that slander. That people might look at us and say, Redeemer, that place is a friend of sinners. Think of that as we go on to our second to last point. In verse 16, it says, and the scribes, of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and when Jesus heard it he said to them those who are well have no need for a physician but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous but sinners you see religious Thought that the best way that they could earn the love of God was to distance themselves from sinners, but you can't love people from a distance. They didn't understand why Jesus would be hanging out with sinners. What they're actually saying is, you are getting this wrong, Jesus. You've chosen the wrong side of the table to be sitting at. The righteous people are on this side. The sinners are on that side. Why are you sitting on the other side of the table? So our idea is come sit over here on the right side of the table, Jesus. If you really want to be righteous, and then the sinners know where they can find us if they're really looking. And that's the way that so many churches approach doing church. We're going to stand over here in our holy huddle. You're invited, but we're not going to go out to you. We're going to stay here, and you come to us. But the problem is, they're not coming, folks. Things have changed. So Jesus went out to them rather than waiting for them to come to him and the religious people start dropping out because they're like well if you're not gonna meet our demands and you're gonna keep meeting the demands of smelly sinners then we're gonna go to the church down the street that has a cleaner tidier Messiah that we can get down with and guess what folks that's not the vision that Jesus had for the church that he was planting his vision was having a giant banquet of saints saints and sinners Co mingled seated at the same table. So you see that the grace of God had two effects in this passage. It's calling those who were sinners to be regenerate and look to Jesus, and it's hardening those who would seek to self justify themselves for religion, which brings ourselves to our final point that sick people need a doctor, not a judge. Look, guys, I say this from time to time, I want to reiterate this. You will never judge somebody into repentance. It's not like somebody's going to say, man, every time I sat around that person, I just felt so condemned that I just wanted to repent of my sin and know they're Jesus. Nobody's ever going to say that, folks. I've never heard a testimony saying, I spent my life running from God But through the constant judgmental hypocrisy of this person, it just drew me back into wanting to be with him. I've heard prayed into the kingdom. I've heard loved into the kingdom. I've never met somebody that was judged into the kingdom. I've met a lot of people who are really burned out on being judged by Christians. And to be honest, folks, I am one of them. There's nothing that's made me feel more tempted to give up than just being tired of judgmental Christians. And if you're struggling with judging, then meditate on this passage and look at the visual picture of what judgmental religious people look like and take notice that Jesus had more fun hanging out with alcoholics and prostitutes than he had hanging out with religious people. You can't get around that in this passage, folks. Remember, sick people do not need to be judged, they need grace. A friend of mine, sent me this quote recently. It said, The world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, heal the sick. There's only one thing that the world cannot do that the church can do. The world cannot offer grace. Guys, grace is still our drawing card. When people know that when they can come to the church and find a doctor, not a judge, then the church looks beautiful and earns the scandal of being known as a friend of sinners. And we get to introduce people to the chief doctor, the chief physician, the Redeemer, who is the embodiment of grace and truth. And and I must say, I'm really, really proud of this church because this is a friend to sinners in this community. May we always be. Amen? Amen. So let me close with this. How long has it been since you've reminded yourself that you are the sick person that Jesus came for in this passage? Because if you've forgotten that you're sick, you will forget that you are the person in need of a doctor. But those who are aware of their condition, they cling to the doctor and they cling to him by the lifeline that was extended to us to know the doctor and that is the lifeline of grace who came not to call the healthy but call unrighteous sinners to know his righteousness, the righteousness that is found at the cross. And being missionary means that we are just in love with and quick to brag about that doctor who didn't come to call the righteous, but called sinners like you and me by His marvelous grace. God, thank You so much for that grace. I pray that it would always be our calling card. I pray that as we consider the mission of our church, Lord, as we begin to get back into the study in the book of Acts, Lord, I pray that this series on our mission as a body would just ground us and remember that upward call to worship You that outward call to share you with others. Lord, that you are the great physician who came to call the sick and you still heal them today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: With this time, we're going to be taking communion. Communion is when um, we get to enjoy the memory of, of Christ's death, his blood that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us. If... If you're here and you've been traveling with us and you um, have that question mark, if you really have a a, a faith in Christ that you would call yourself a a Christian, then we would ask that um, if those questions are in your heart that you would uh, refrain in this time. And um, all of us, that we would take this time and this song to prepare our hearts to think about Christ, to think about what we just heard in this sermon And when you receive the elements, hold on to them, and we'll take them together after this song.
2: Come Lord Jesus come Come again to claim your endless seas wielding swords and stars and keys bring the nations to their knees Faithful is your name and true. So until the sun does rise, till your trumpets rend the skies, help us keep our restless eyes on you.
1: Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. May you drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, I pray as we close our time together, Lord, would you burn our hearts, Lord, in, in remembering our own stories, Lord, Remembering that it was us who showed up to you needing a doctor, needing a a savior, Lord, just messy and, and, and just uh, humbled, Lord. I pray as we sing this song as we recount the story that we all share of of once being in our sin, but now knowing you and looking forward to our future glory in you, Lord, I pray that this song would just spur us on, Lord, and thinking of all the many thousands that live all around us that do not know you, Lord. Would you burn our hearts for them? We pray this in your name, amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing?
3: was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, Us in that promised joy and light had led I
1: Jesus, would you um, would you just imprint that great commission, Lord, in our heart. Lord, thank you for being our example. May we be missionaries, Lord, to a, a dying and hurting world. We look forward to your return, God, when everything is redeemed. And, Lord, and as we wait, may we be spreading the good news of your death and your resurrection to to all around us. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.